Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. One of the things that really makes Colossians um, come alive for us, uh, specifically us uh, here at RCC, is that the scholars believe that the church in the city of Colossae, Colossians, Colossae, um, they believe that church was a house church. Mm-hmm. They believe that church was a small gathering of believers that met in a home and that Paul never, ever visited them. He only wrote a letter because word reached them from one of the people who planted the church who was from their hometown. So you got a lot of hometown people, got a lot of home, t- home cooking in the building, and they met similar to how we are. Thousands of years ago, 1,800 years ago, 1,900 years ago, there's a group of people sitting in a home pursuing Christ together and living life together just like us. We're continuing that going forward. But in this particular week, we're going to get into Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 15 because we covered 1 through 14 last week. But this specific passage is where Paul deals with Jesus. Now, you might go, well, isn't the whole thing about Jesus? Well, yeah, kind of, but he uh, primarily, yes. But in this passage, he uses this very poetic language to describe who Jesus is and give us the foundation or the doctrine of Christ. Now, if you are someone who hears that word doctrine and go theology and your kind of eyes glaze over and be like, I'm out. I don't know what what we're going to do from here on out. I'm just done for the rest of the message. Don't check out on me, and don't be intimidated when you hear that word doctrine. All it means are the true principles of something. So when we talk about the doctrine of Jesus, and when Paul talks about the doctrine of Jesus, he's just talking about the truth and the principles of Jesus. Make sense? He was, a, um, he was trained to be a religious expert as a Pharisee. That's how he was trained. Remember, he was there when, when uh, Stephen was, was, um, was stoned to death. He was there with the Pharisees, the religious experts. So he spent most of his childhood, most of his upbringing, studying the Old Testament. And so in this passage, he makes references to the Old Testament and starts to bring out things to say, hey, in the Old Testament, we talked about the Messiah was coming. Oh, he already came. We talked about the Messiah was going to do X, Y, and Z. He already came and did those things. He fulfilled all of it. And so when we look at this particular passage, everything is pointing to Jesus. All of it, okay? So I'm going to start by reading out loud um, Colossians 1, 15 through 23. It's there in your notes. Um, I'll read it out loud. You can just follow along quiet, okay? Colossians 1. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Excuse me. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all, and uh, all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. 
for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he brought you into his own presence, and you were holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as Christ's servant to proclaim it. <clears throat> Out of that passage, I want to bring our attention to five things. They're numbered in your notes, one through five. And the first one is this. It might seem really, really obvious, but we have to start here. Yeah. Jesus is God. Jesus Christ is God. How do we know that from that passage? The very first line that we read. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the visible, the thing that we can see, image of the invisible God, whom no one has ever seen. <clears throat> now, many belief systems, many religions, many philosophers, many people will present, have presented, even in the time of Colossae, and all the way through history till today, they present ideas that say, Jesus, he was a good man. He was a prophet. He was a good example. He was a mighty teacher. He was a martyr. He was a rabbi. And they will list down all these positive attributes of Jesus and then stop short before calling him God. This is one of the reasons why even though there are a lot of smart people who want to talk about the Bible as literature, as this ancient book, as this ancient writing, we cannot fully listen to everything they would present to us because if you're not a believer, the Holy Spirit is not inspiring you, is not provoking you to bring us the actual truth because all of those ideas, if you're away from Christ, come from man. There's a temptation for us. A lot of smart people will say a lot of smart things, and they will come to us, and they will present in the world, online, social media, on television, directly in classes and courses you guys will take eventually, in school and in college and so on. They'll, they'll sound really, really smart. But if they are not submitted to Christ, and they have not been made new, and they are not saved. There might be a handful of things to go, oh, that's interesting to think about, but you cannot take what they're telling you as the gospel because they have not come to faith in Jesus. Why? Because if you stop short of saying that he is God, then you miss the whole thing. If he's not God, faith in him is pointless. If he's not God, believing upon him does not lead to, sal lead to salvation. He is God. One of the largest religions in the world, not Christianity, but one of the largest religions in the world teaches that Jesus was crucified but survived the crucifixion. That is contrary to the Bible and contrary to all of the history we have about Jesus. He definitely died on the cross. 
One of the largest religions also says that he didn't die on the cross. And they go one step further and they go, you know what? Jesus never said that he was God. And I'll go, I have a Bible here I'd like you to read. Because he said it many times. But this is just one example of when he said it. <clears throat> Let's look at, I'm sorry, the, the, the next line in your notes. Jesus existed before the world began. Jesus existed before the world began. Uh, a human being did not exist before the world began. Only God did. Let's read this next passage where Jesus talks about him being God. John 14, 6 through 10. Jesus said, these are his own words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip, this is one of his followers, said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this, or been with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I'm, the, I'm in the Father and the Father in me? The words I speak are not my own, but the Father who lives in me does his work through me. That is just one place where he says, hey, if you've seen me, you have seen God. I am, me and him are one. We're together. Jesus Christ is God. The nine words that we started off reading, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God, is just one more confirmation from Paul's mouth to the church in Colossae and to us today that Jesus Christ is God. You'll run into people who don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They believe there's God, and he's God, and Jesus was a good man, and God worked through him. But no, God, well, we're going to go through here a little bit later. We just read God created everything through Jesus. If he was just the man, how was he there to create? He wasn't. He's not just a man. He is God. <clears throat> Second thing I want, to, I want to draw our attention to, number two in your notes, Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control. <clears throat> How do we know? In that passage we just read, Paul said, He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Now this is the point where you're really going to have to press in and listen to what I'm telling you, because my guess is, most of you, like me, did not know what I'm about to say to you. When you talk about things like the unseen world, there's typically two groups of people in the, in that, that are part of our, the church and part of our fellowship. There's the first group of people who, when you say the unseen world and talk about spiritual stuff, they go, I'm here. Ooh, they light up like a Christmas tree, right? Like you shook up a two-liter bottle and put it on the counter, and they're just like, hit me just with a little, just spin that lid a little bit. And we're like, whoa, yes, we're going to go. We're going to lay hands on things. We're going to bring the Shonda down. We're going to march around the house, you know, do all that kind of stuff. And then the people who are super excited, they're not excited about anything else that happens in the church, but they are excited when it comes to the spiritual stuff. Hit me with some warfare. Let's do some three-hour intercession. You know what I mean? Those people, right? And then there's another extreme on the other end who people are like, are you, are you talking about the spiritual stuff, bro? 
That's weird. I I just came to eat and go to work tomorrow. And like see some friends and we and just come to church, man. We're gonna go weird on me. And I would say to uh, so let me speak first to people on both ends of the, of the scale. <clears throat> if you are one of those people who the thing that you live for is the spiritual stuff, God made the unseen world with beings that we can't see, that influence us. But if he wanted you to live there, he would have created you to be there now, the work that we have here is not complete. What is our work? Our work is to tell other people about Jesus, to love him with everything we've got, to love other people, to serve one another, to spread the message of the gospel, and to disciple the people who believe so that what will they do? They will love God and love people and serve each other and teach their families, and then they will extend past the our own limitations and they will get into places to preach the gospel and then begin to disciple people so then they will then do the same thing and they will continue on i'm not saying that you shouldn't pray for things or get into that mode but i'm saying if you only get lit up about that and not telling other people about the about christ then you've missed what you're here to do Last week's message, we talked about what God's will is, his desire is. And the first thing that we talked about was what? He wants everybody to come to repentance and come to knowledge of him. He didn't say he wants you to walk in the third heaven and talk to the angel. And if you do that, I need to pray for you <laughs> because if you're talking to the angels, they're not angels. They're not talking to you. On the other end, if I'm talking to people on the other end who are like, bro, don't go weird on me. Don't go weird on me. Don't be talking about spirits. Next sign in your notes. The reality is an unseen world exists that Jesus also created. We just read it. He made the things we see and can't see. Thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. What do you think those authorities are? Spirits, entities that are not human beings, that are working in a way that we can't see. <clears throat> Do spirits exist? Yes. Do evil spirits exist? Yes. Are they at work influencing in the world today? Yes. Do they look like the orcs from the Lord of the Rings? <clears throat> Are they marching up to your door to drag you and your children down to hell? No. How do they operate today? Huh? Through people? Okay. How do they work through them? How do they work through people? Fear. Fear? Memories of past stuff? Yes. They are influencing humans through temptation. Let no one say when he's tempted, he's tempted of God, for he's not tempted of God. That temptation comes from somewhere else. When you are led away by your own desire, 
But how are you led by your own desire? Either you are listening to yourself or being influenced to move in that direction. There is an influence around you from a spiritual perspective that is at work trying to get you to submit to yourself, not to God, for you to look inwardly and give in to the anger, the fear, the hatred, all of the jealousy that is part of our gross, rotten flesh, and to say, forget that God thing. You just pay attention to this because we can find a way to immediately make this feel better instead of waiting on God to help us grow through it. They also influence other people, which is why you got to be careful who's around you. They influence other people to try to lead you to temptation. They're not going to just show up here missing an eyeball, his nose is bent this way, you know, it's black, it's dripping out of his thing. Come with me. Everybody would be like, no. Everybody would say no. But what is, what is the enemy, what do the adversaries of God, these evil spirits, present themselves as? Attractive. The old King James says, Ross hit it, angels of light. This is good. Don't worry about that. Just come with me. Now, <clears throat> How many of you heard, because I know most of the denominations you guys have grown up in, for most of you, how many of you heard that um, in the time of Israel, when the people sinned, they had to do a once-a-year sin offering to cover the sins of the nation? How many people have heard that before? A lot? Okay. In the Jewish culture, one of the things God instructed them was once a year, a priest would make a sacrifice for the sins of the whole nation. He had to be perfect, and not perfect indeed, because no man is perfect, but he had to be presented perfect. His clothes had to be flawless. What he wore had to be flawless. How he prepared and literally bathed himself had to be flawless because there was only one person that was allowed to step into the Holy of Holies with the presence of God, only one. Some of the traditions say that they, that they would tie an, a rope around his ankle because if he went in impure and died, no one could go in the presence of God to get him or they would die, and they would pull him out by the rope just in case. They sacrificed this lamb, and they would take the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. They'd sprinkle it around some specific places in the temple, and when that happened, that spilling of the blood... Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Without the spilling of blood, that blood that was spilled from the animal would cover the sins of the nation. Anybody everybody remember that now? You heard that before? Yeah. What I didn't know was that was only half of the requirement. There was another requirement. I'm not going to read the whole passage to you, but you, if, you were, if you're interested in it, it's in Leviticus 16. But God instructs the priest to sacrifice the bull. And then he instructs him to take a second bull outside the city and lead it into the wilderness, push it off into the wilderness to satisfy 
the spirit that was placed authority over the dead. When you die, when I die, when human beings die, you are not a body. You have a body. There's a spirit in you that moves to this unseen world. The Jews had several names for it, several descriptions for it. They called it the place of the dead. Some referred to it as Sheol. Um, some of them referred to it as the underworld, but it was the place that the dead went after they lived here. They went to this area, and there was a supernatural, a spiritual being that was given authority to say what happened over humanity when they died. That spirit rebelled against God much like human beings rebel against God. Spirit said, I don't want to do what you want anymore. I'm going to do what I want. And what the, what the Jewish people referred to that second bull as was the scapegoat. Anybody heard that word before? This is where we get it from. All of the sins, all of the sins were laid on that bull that was sacrificed and the sins were covered. And then the second bull, the scapegoat, the sins that took the place it substituted the place of the people who were guilty and they sent it off into the wilderness to appease that spirit i missed that whole second half no one told me about the second half of that probably because they went i think that's weird i'm going to skip right over <laughs> right because i never heard any of that <clears throat> so you might be thinking matt you said this whole thing's about jesus Go to, go to your notes real quick. The first sacrifice was used to cover the sins of the people. That was the first bull. The first sacrifice was used to cover the sins of the people. The second sacrifice was sent to the wilderness as a scapegoat to satisfy the spirit of the dead. How did this apply to Jesus, and why is it important to bring up today? Because Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood to cover our sins. He was in the tomb for three days, and then he rose again, and we celebrate that on Easter. When his body was laid in the tomb, if you go to the book of 1 Peter, I think it's both chapter 3 and 4, Jesus descends, his spirit descended into hell. And he went and confronted that spiritual authority that ran the place of the dead where all the people that had passed away. He walked in and said, um, I gave you the authority to manage this area. You rebelled against me. I'm taking that authority away from you. You don't have the say anymore of who goes where. He walked in and said, your job is over. I'm taking it from you, and there ain't one darn thing you can do about it. You like apples? How you like them apples? 
How do we know he did this? Rome, our Revelations 1, 17 through 18. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. This is Jesus talking. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. There aren't physical keys, like for my Kia or my Chevy that I carry around in my pocket that I have to put an air tag on because I can't find them half the time, right? So it's not about keys like that. When you see someone has the keys, it meant they have been granted authority. So when he says, I went down to, I went, I descended into hell, the place of the dead, and I looked at all, at the spirit that is running this and said, uh, I'll take the keys back from you because you have no say over the people who confess me as their Lord. You have no say that they have to stay here. You have no say where they get to go. They actually get to walk right by you to bypass you, and they get to come straight to me because I'm the one that's in control. I'm the one that gave you this authority. I'm telling you it's over. You have to do what I'm saying, and there ain't nothing you can do about it. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved because not only was he the atonement, he was our scapegoat. And he went down there and set everything straight and said, you don't have the authority anymore. I got the authority. And if they believe in me, they don't even have to fool with you ever. I don't know if this sounds right coming out of a white boy's mouth, but that was gangster right there. <laughs> No, no. That, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen like gangster stuff, but that's the gangster move right there, right? He walks in and says, uh, there ain't nothing you can do about it. I'm taking the authority and walking like, right about for you. The encouraging thing for all of us, Jesus is in control. He's in control. And I don't know about you. I don't have time to get into this right now. But if you want to sit and be broken about how much you're loved by God, think about Jesus was your scapegoat. He became our sin. He became our sin to satisfy his order and take back authority. I got to get off that one. I'm not going to go to the rest of the message. Number three. Jesus is the head of the church. <clears throat> Jesus is the head of the church. This next statement is for believers in Christ. Okay? The next line in your notes. We are his body. We are his body. What does that mean? If the head is removed from your body, it's over. You ain't doing nothing without your head. You can navigate losing an arm, a pinky. It'd be hard to play instruments, am I right? It'd be, it'd be tough. Leg, hard to run, no more athlete stuff. It'd be hard to do all that, but you can make it. You don't have a head? Over for you. Since Jesus is the head, the head of the body makes decisions and instructs the body how to function. Okay? It makes decisions and instructs the body how to function. If Christ is our head, he is the one making decisions on how we should function. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 through 20 and 27 through 28. But our bodies have many parts, and God has each part 
just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. All of you together, you believers in Christ, the church, are Christ, are Christ's body, and each of you is part of it. Here are some of the parts God has appointed for the church. First, the apostles, second, the prophets, third, are teachers, then those who do miracles, those who have the gift of healing, those who can help others, those who have a gift of leadership, those who speak in unknown languages. This list is not a conclusive, exhaustive list of every gift in the church. It's just the ones he mentions here. Did you notice what he said? How useless the body would be if it was one part. Can you imagine if there was just a giant nose walking around? You'd be like, how are you living? You ain't got a heart. You ain't got a mouth to breathe, lungs. You're just a nose. In the similar way, I think he does this to kind of exaggerate to make a point. In the similar way, the highest level of service to the church is not the pastor. It's not the worship leader. It's not a church staff member. It is someone who has been given a gift to teach, to lead, to help, to fulfill a role in the member of the body. If everybody was a pastor, there'd be no one to listen to the teaching. If everybody was an evangelist, there'd be no one to disciple anyone. If everybody was a foot, how would we pick anything up? You see what I'm saying? He's the head of the body. He is the place all of us find our purpose. This is one of the reasons we talk about this a lot. It's because when you are connected to Christ, he, he puts you as where you're supposed to be in the body, just where he wants you. If you read another, uh, another description of this in a, in a different verse, he talks about what good would it say if the, if the, the ear looked at the eye and went, oh, I'm not the eye, I don't, have, I don't serve any purpose. If you ever looked at a pastor and said, well, I'm not that, I'm not that guy, I can't do anything, that's exactly what he was talking about. You are to play your role. Are there maybe pastors in this room? Maybe. Maybe. But if you're not, guess what? The pastor role is not at the top. It's just one of the ways that God has built his body to serve one another. Would the body suffer, the entire body, if I didn't have hands to pick food up and eat? Yes, we need the hand to be able to do its job because it helps everything. We need the feet to be able to take us to the place to get the food. Like the nearest Mexican restaurant. My man. Renee bought many chimneys tonight. And I'll just confess, I already snuck one. Before y'all got here, I snuck one. She was here early, and I already ate one. Thank you. Thank you, my man, right here. Right here. <clears throat> so I got no way to get to the Mexican restaurant without, the food, without my feet. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, you may say, <clears throat> Matt, I know people who tell me they found their purpose, and they don't live for God. Yeah. They don't live for God. They, th they think they found their purpose. They may have found 
a purpose, but it is not the one they have, they were created and designed to make. Okay? I'm going to show you a clip of somebody using their body in a way it was not designed to be used. Some of y'all get this real quick because y'all are fans, but. <laughs> oh, don't worry about it. Wait, it's okay. Let me start out. Here you go. <clears throat> Why? 20 minutes a day, Jim. That's all it takes. 20 minutes a day, all feet, no hands, and I'll have the petted dexterity of a chimp, and you'll be sitting there like an idiot. <clears throat> Do you mind? I'm sorry, Pam. Allow me to write you an apology letter. You don't have to do that. D. E. A. Oh. <laughs> Space A, dear. Thank you, hands. Nothing else in the universe can do what you do. given you in a way that it's not designed this is the result in a very humorous way you may think I've found this new use for my skill but if you're not a believer you're not connected to the head and no matter what you come up with it's all dead ideas because until you're connected to the head you do not realize what your true design and function is for they're really good at it, man. They're really good at typing with their feet. Great. Uh, what would it be like if they used the gift they were given in the way that God intended them to, to use it? How much more effective and fulfilling would it be? He's the head. And he's the one who gives us our function. The only true way to know your purpose is to connect to your creator and have him show you how to fill that purpose, which is a small piece of his great purpose. And don't let that, and that'll blow your mind and cook your noodle too. When God put this entire plan together and said, I want you to play a role. What's the importance of you finding the purpose of your life because you are playing a role in the greatest plan that has ever existed in history and will end with people finding Christ and living for eternity. My friends, you've got to find your purpose. And you're not going to find it not attached to the head. And Jesus is the head of the church. Number four. God, uh, Jesus was fully God and fully man. <clears throat> he was fully God and fully man. Paul references this. He, he alludes to it. 
For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him reconciled everything to himself. I listened um, to lectures. I watched some other messages. I read several commentaries. And after I got about a dozen in, I thought, this idea needs a whole message which we're not going to give it today. Because there is so much explanation, so much in-depth study, so much scripture that was a part of it, and I was looking for a way to kind of communicate, how does that work? You're fully God and fully man. How are you both of those things at the same time? And so I ran across um, kind of a, someone who had a thought that I'm going to take and put it into a little illustration that's not perfect, but I think will get us a little bit closer to understanding how this works, fully God and fully man. Okay? Sergio, ask Sarah, do you want to sit up here because he's going to make an example out of us or use us for something. And so he's right. You don't have to stand up. I'm just going to just use y'all as a reference. Sorry. Um, so Sarah is a human being, right? 100%. Like there's no like... Star Trek, like Klingon, like Vulcan, green blood thing. You're 100% human. Okay, 100% human. She's 100% human, but you know what else she is? 100% woman. Sergio, 100% human? 100%. 100% human. Just want to confirm. We got to be accurate. 100% human, but 100% man. Even though they're both humans, her nature is to care and nurture her children and her family. But even though he's a human, his nature is to provide and protect. It doesn't mean that there's not moments where those things don't cross over, because I know you're a part of the provision, you're a part of the nurturing, the caring and stuff, but you default to those things because that's their nature, even though they are human. In a similar way, Jesus, his God nature, and fully human. The same way she is human and a woman, he is human and male, God was human and God. He had to lay down some of his ability and ultimate privilege to walk amongst us like humans would. Because if not, he wouldn't have to walk. He just float. I don't know why y'all are tired. We've been walking for miles. Well, y'all been walking. I've been floating. He had to eat. He had to sleep. He dealt with tiredness. An ant bit him on the foot, and he was like, I hate that I made these things. I'm just kidding. That's <laughs> right? He's like, hey, all of that same stuff happened to him. Why? Because he wanted you to know that he knew exactly everything that you struggle with. He was tempted in every way, just as you are, but he didn't sin because his nature wasn't man or woman. His nature was God, and he walked in humanity to show, to be the sacrifice, to be the scapegoat, and to say, you are not 
alone in any struggle, in any trial, in any situation. He has already walked through it, and he is the one who will walk you through it. You do not have a God who doesn't know what it's like to be you. Oh, my friend, he knows exactly the struggle you've been dealing with. The last one, number five. Jesus changed us from his enemy to his children. Jesus changed us from his enemy to his children. Of all the things in this message, this is the one I struggled with. And you may not, but for me, it was the one that kind of rattled me up a little bit. We are his enemies. Those are Paul's words. My first, my first response is, uh-huh. I wasn't his enemy. He ain't my enemy. How, was, how, how were we enemies? And my thought always was when I heard people say this, that God was my enemy. That's not what Paul says. He says, you were God's enemy. The initiation point was us, not God. How did you initiate, did I initiate being God's enemy? The next line, you were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. If that's the criteria, every single one of us are his enemy or were at one time. So my first thought was, this has to be a bad translation of the word enemy. So I went and looked up the word enemy in the original language, and it's not a bad translation. Here's what the definition is. Hated, hostile, opposing another. Used of men as um, at enmity with God by their sin, opposing God in the mind, a certain enemy. And by our sinful nature, this is what we were to God. And I chewed on that for a while, trying to figure out a really nice, slick, teacher-style, preacher-style way to present that. But the bottom line is, when I didn't serve him, and when I got mad because my pastor acted a fool, and we had to leave the church, and he did all this stuff to me, when all that happened, and I got really upset because the guy who was the pastor hurt me, and I started doing what I wanted to do, I said it was because I, because I was hurt. I said it was because I was mad. But the reality is, I did what I wanted to do. No one forced me to get involved in the relationships I was in. No one forced me to feel and harbor the hatred and the jealousy and the anger that was in, inside of me. Nobody did that. I did that, and when I stepped out of living the way I was taught and knew which was right, my actions were telling God, I don't care who you are, I'm going to do what I want. And when that hit me last night, 
I couldn't, I couldn't take, I couldn't take it. I couldn't chew that one down. I couldn't digest it. I had to sit there with it, with that uncomfortable reality that by my actions, that by my rebellion, that through my arrogance and through my, through my purposeful, do, purposely doing things that were opposite of how God designed me to be, when I did that, I told him, I'm not on your side no more. I'm your enemy. My actions, Paul's words, your evil actions. Put you as an enemy. And as I was sitting there kind of chewing through it and was having a hard time, like, man, this is a tough one, God. I just, I like it to go down a little bit easier. He, he reminded me of a passage. Matthew 5, 43 through 45. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. And then it hit me. All those times that I read this scripture and I was told by preachers and youth pastors and pastors and by people who were influential in my life who were believers and they were saying to me, forgive your enemies, love your enemies, let all your hate go, let all the frustration, let all the angst against them go, let all of that go. It wasn't because I was going to show them that I was morally superior and I found this moral high ground to stay on and I do what's right and so I forgive people. No, it's because you were his enemy, and he forgave you. And so there is no way in the world that we can hold any kind of judgment, any kind of ought, any kind of frustration against our enemies. We love our enemies because he loved us, and we were his enemy. It's not because that's what you're supposed to do. You little Christians, not supposed to be angry or hateful. Come on now, buck up. He said, you were my enemy, and I loved you. So how can you harbor hate against anyone else? Because you directly, with your actions, became my enemy. And I still died, and I still went down into Hades, and I still set things right on the chance that you would believe me. Who loves like that? I don't. I like to think I grew in love after I've served God for a long time, but who loves like that? Him. That gives a completely new definition to in that way, when you forgive others and you love your enemies, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Not because you became moral all of a sudden, but because you took on his characteristic that he first displayed to you. <clears throat> As I was sitting there thinking about this and talking it through and praying about it and wrestling with some of these things and trying to figure out the right way to present them, my mind just went back 
to Jesus. Everything that he's done for me, every time that he should have, that he should have, said, I'm not fooling with you no more. He still stepped up and gave me grace. It reminded me of all the things that I couldn't sit here and count all these ways. I couldn't do it. If you have moments of worry and fear, Jesus is God. When things in your life are in a tailspin, he is in control. When you don't know where you fit, you don't know what you're supposed to do, you don't know how you, what, how, how you lock in as a piece of this whole thing, Jesus is the head of the church and he's the one that gives you your purpose. When you feel alone and wonder if anyone knows what you are dealing with and how you're going through the thing that you're doing and you feel isolated and abandoned, Jesus it was fully God and fully man. He knows exactly what you're dealing with. When you don't know if you belong, you don't know how in the world God could save a wretch like me. He changed us from his enemy to his children. Jesus Christ is our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Deliverer. He's my King. That is Paul's doctrine of Jesus. That is the truth of God's son. That is the truth of the man who hung on the cross. That is the truth of the person who never leaves you or forsakes you. That is the truth of the one who will walk with you all the way to the end and then past it. He's the one who's gone ahead of you and cleared the way. He's the one who's descended into the places that we never want to go to set things right on our behalf. He is the one who spilled his blood for us. He is the one who held out hope for us. He's the one who gave grace to us. He's the one who bore our sin. He did it because he loves you, and that is my kingdom.